Hello, and welcome to the inaugural episode of Martifa, the project on Shiism and global affairs first podcast in a dialogue on Shia thought. My name is Michelle, and I'm a research assistant on the project and student at Harvard University. Today we talk with Syed Ali Abbas Razavi, the general director and chief imam of the Scottish Ahl Bayt Society and an associate on the project. We explore the importance of Imam Ali and the perfect man in the philosophy of Ibn Arabi as a prelude to his lecture at Harvard, which is appended to this podcast. Syed, welcome to Marifa. My first question would be for you, why do you think a theological approach in the context of this project is one that is necessary to understanding the other dynamics of our projects, whether they be geopolitical, whether they have to do with realities on the ground? Well, firstly, thank you very much for having me here today. Um, if I can expand slightly what theology here would mean, because within the Islamic context, theology is very specific, um, but it, more in a Western context, you're looking at the different strands of Islamic sciences, which may come under the umbrella of theology. So whereas theology within the Islamic context is literally theology, in the Greek sense. Mm. But what we're looking at, at least in this project, from my understanding, is diverse disciplines which reflects the diversity of Islam. And because Islam is so interlinked, and as we were saying last night, this great civilization was based upon seven cultures. And those seven cultures, when they interacted, so from the Malay cultures to the subcontinent, to the Persian culture, to the Arabic culture, African culture, the East European cultures, West Africa, when all of these various cultures, cultural strands interacted, it's what produced a tapestry of what Islam symbolizes today. So you cannot individually take a subject and focus upon that thinking that you're going to understand the full scope of what Islam symbolizes. However, you have to take the full body of Islam and its disciplines to understand how to move forward. Sometimes if a person doesn't understand Islamic art, they would not be able to understand why in Afghanistan certain things happen because of the Taliban. And you can look at it on the basis of society and politics. But until you don't go back to understand Islamic art in that particular region, you wouldn't, you wouldn't understand why exactly they went to destroy, the, let's say, the monument of Buddha and so forth. So I think, it's, um, I think to understand the whole requires the various components and this is why multiplicity must be in unity and unity must be in multiplicity hence the idea that we were discussing yesterday of the polymaths the polymaths developed a methodology whereby they looked at all the disciplines for the purpose of attaining god and if the principle of islam is laid on the foundations of tawhid you've got to understand the various components otherwise it leads to polytheism it's actually the antithesis of what Islam is about. So just to study, let's say, sociology on its own in Islamic countries, you're actually going to as polytheism as opposed to the foundations that were laid, which is one of Tawheed. So I want to expand on this idea of Tawheed then, because yesterday in our discussions of Ibn Arabi and the perfect man, it would seem that the perfect man is a universal archetype. It's not one that has multiple dimensions to it necessarily, it is the paragon. 
So then, with someone like Imam Ali, how do we nuance our conception of what the perfect man is and also what the paths to becoming the perfect man are if there's this idea of multiplicity and unity? What does it mean to embrace that multiplicity, to accept that multiplicity, and what does it mean, therefore, to find unity within that multiplicity? So, the per- so if we go back to Ibn Arabi's philosophy, the perfect man is the actualization of the Haqiqat al-Muhammadiyah. The Haqiqat al-Muhammadiyah consists of all of the names and attributes of God. And essentially it is the world of being. The world of being comes into existence when God says, Kun, be. And Ibn Arabi says that the Kaf of the Kun is symbolic, symbolic to Kamal. And the Nun is Nuraniya. So when you bring together these two concepts of light and perfection and when you actualize it, it is what the perfect man is. So the perfect man embodies two things. There's no bifurcation because God's kun is in unity. But it has to be nur, light brings into existence, and then the concept of perfection. So the perfect man itself is light, perfected light, which contains, and it's the perfect person really, Insan Kamil, it's not a man. It's actually the perfect human being, the Adamic archetype, the reality of Adam itself, which is a gender. And so the perfect man is the mirror of God's names and attributes. When you look into a mirror, you see your image. The mirror has an independent existence, but when you look into it, it's an extension of what you are. When God looks into the mirror of the perfect man, he sees an extension of himself, even though the mirror is finite, and even though the mirror is only the mirror because of the person looking into it. So in this way, you have this figure, the perfect man. How, do one, how does one get to that? Well, I think that there are multiple methodologies of getting to that, and it comes down to the individual and the needs of the individual. Every human being is unique, and every human being will therefore have their own unique way of getting to God. That doesn't mean that there's no roadmap. It means that our trial and tribulation on this path will be unique. But there is a roadmap. To understand that roadmap requires two things. The common way of understanding it is initiation. Initiation means that a person who's already transcended this pathway can come back and help you to transcend that pathway. Or, for the methodology of sincerity. If you are so sincere and so grateful to God, then God himself will lift you like a magnet and pull you up to the front, the top. That's why within the Irfani school there's two types of mystics. Jezbi and Jezb, straight up. Mm. And then the other one is Saluki. You go on a Saluk that everybody else does. Slowly, slowly, you're making your way mm. up to the top. So there's two ways of doing this. One depends purely on your sincerity and your will and your tears. Because crying is actually a very big part of the spiritual journey. Imam Ali says in Da'i Kumail that the only weapon you have in front of God is your tears. You cannot achieve a station without the application of tears because tears are a manifestation of your love and of your brokenness 
And what you're saying to God is that I am broken and I require you to heal me and to make me whole. And remember, it is because of the light of God that you're becoming whole. When you become the mirror of God, what have you become? You've become whole. So that requires the one looking into the mirror to make sure that the mirror is whole. If you come arrogantly in front of God to say that I'm already the best, then what happens? You stop there. There's no evolution. You've got to cry like your father Adam cried. He cried. And so God says to the angels, Gabriel, teach him the names. But God, he made a mistake. Yes, but he cried. He repented. He came back to me. So raise him. And that's why sometimes, if you look at some of the books of spirituality, the first station is the station of understanding. Right? The first station is the station of understanding, opening your eyes, awakening. The second station is the station of repentance. Before you can even climb, you have to repent. So, so it's anyhow, yeah. a humility almost that breaks the ego. And it's a willingness to look past your ego, which is then required for that process of self-refinement. Otherwise, there's an inherent stasis because you don't see a path forwards because you believe yourself to have already attained all of those virtues. That's the hubris. I would say it's being truthful to yourself. That's all it is. To understand your position in the universe, to be truthful to yourself. Why not? Most people are not truthful to themselves. If you're truthful to yourself, you'll see your own vices and you'll see your position in creation. You can lie to people, but don't ever lie to yourself. So I want to take this idea that seems to be embedded in a virtue ethics of looking towards others who've already attained virtue through this path to then cultivate and curate your own virtues. And what I want to ask is because this has both an intrinsic and an extrinsic significance, I think, is how we recognize that wisdom, that love that overflows in others so that we select the correct mentors and leaders in our own lives such that we can receive that path and that internal fulfillment, that internal enlightenment, as you mentioned yesterday, because I think this bears upon the decisions we make sometimes in political settings, but also who we choose to be the leaders in our life to bring forth our light. So how do you think we recognize that? Is it intuitional? Is it through that sincerity that we then recognize that sincerity in others? How does that bring to bear on this philosophy? Firstly, I think that virtue is an objective reality. And you'll find that regardless of faith and upbringing, Generally speaking, humans have an understanding of virtue which is similar. Lying is bad, regardless of who lies. Lying will be bad. Cheating will be bad. Helping people will be good. So there are multiple different virtues that we have, universal virtues, which are the same. To refine these virtues means to recognize them first and foremost. So again, everything comes down to being awoken to certain realities. And then after that, I would say there's a three-pronged approach 
that mystics would take. Firstly, service, helping other people, service to other people, because it helps you empathize. There's a tradition that says that if you sit with rich people, you will become arrogant. But if you sit with the poor, you'll always learn to appreciate. It's a prophetic tradition. To sit with people of humility, to sit with people of knowledge will expand your knowledge. To sit with materialistic people will make you more materialistic. Why? Because your soul picks up on the various rays and vibes of other people. Whether you know it or you don't know it, that's why the biggest teacher for a child is his mother and then father. Because if there's a contradiction in the character of a parent, the children will pick up that contradiction. Mm. You don't necessarily need to show that contradiction in front of them. But there's a contradiction inside of you that spiritually will affect. So coming down to this first is selflessness, selfless service. Secondly is prayer. You must pray. You must pray for guidance. And then thirdly, when you've done both of those things, is submitting to the divine will. You have to allow God to work through you. How do you see people of this type? Well, when you're doing something yourself, which is godly, when you're purifying your own heart, then the promise of God is there to put wisdom in your heart and to open your eyes up. Not your physical eyes, but the more your heart shines, the more the basira, the more the, uh, the vision of the heart becomes in identifying people who are of that pathway. Identification, therefore, is not something physical then. It then comes down to your aptitude as a person. So you have to put in some kind of a foundation. And then after that, through putting in a foundation, you'll then, through your own existence, come to see those people who are on this pathway. For those people looking for a particular thing, will surely find it. You're looking for, if your aim in life is business, you'll find people in that business. If your aim in life is spirituality, you'll find it. There was a Darvish once was asked. He said, what do you think of this town? He said, I don't know. I said, why? You've been living here for 10 years. He said, oh, all I saw was God. And the same thing. If you want to find corruption, you'll find it. But if you want to find God, you'll find it wherever you are. What then of he or she who have diverged from this path? Because it seems to me to be the case that one has to be willing to be on this path in the first place to receive the gradual enlightenment, which again fulfills that path in and of itself because you select the right people in your lives, you heed the counsel of God through prayer. What is the obligation of those who are enlightened to help others on this path, first of all? And second of all, once we have diverged, are we consigned to that eternal ignorance or is there a way we can be brought back internally? And how do you see those resources as emerging to the individual? I would say that never to lose hope. If you look at the four-stage devolution of the Satan, he starts off as Harith. He evolves to Azazil. He becomes Iblis. And then he finishes off on Shaitan. 
why does he become in bliss? Because he loses hope in God. So however you diverge off the path, and it happens sometimes, especially those people who want to do too much too quickly, it happens to them. Go slowly, do what you can handle, and develop slowly. You'll see that people who are very fast, not all, but some people who want to accelerate very fast, like in the month of Ramadan when you're the first day you finish half of the Quran, the second day you finish a chapter, third day looking at a paper, the fourth year is three lines, and from the fifth onwards for the next 20 days you won't read the Quran because you're so tired. There needs to be consistency. On the spiritual pathway, there must be consistency. But take it in small bites. You don't need to rush. There's a lot of time if you're doing it correctly. And if you're not, then time is short for you. So I would say don't lose hope in the mercy of God. You're your own doctor. You should be able to identify where disease is coming in. And generally this happens because we have uh, shallow foundations. But the way you can strengthen your foundations is if you take account accountability of your own self on a daily basis. If you have the ability to sit down even for a minute and evaluate your day, positive things that you've done and negative things that you've done, what you're then doing is you're holding yourself accountable. So if you were to slip up, let's say, then you would know where you've slipped up and you would know how to rectify that. So Sayyid, in Shia thought, there seems to be an emphasis on having a guide so that you can refine yourself. What is this guide referring to in Shia thought? Is it to the Imam? Is it to the Prophet? Is it to finding your own internal resource? And what does it mean to find that guide for yourself as well? So let's break this question down into its various components. God created Adam and he chose Adam to be a prophet. I'm making a Khalifa on this earth, which was really what God was doing. Nobody else had the right to make it. God made it. A mirror of himself and the first person had to be a prophet. And the reason why he had to be a prophet was that no one would have an argument against God on the day of judgment that there was no guide. And the Qur'an talks about every nation having a guide. And so guidance is something which is important. And in every generation, there was a guide. There was a prophet or the successor to a prophet. So if we follow that chain, 10 generations later, you have Noah. And 10 generations later, for example, you have Abraham. And Abraham breaks into two. Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael goes to the Arabian Peninsula. Isaac, from him comes Israel. The greatest sibling rivalry on earth develops between the family of two brothers. Even though, according to the Torah, both brothers came together at their father's funeral to bury their father. But, amongst their children, a rivalry develops. Prophecy is found within the Israelites. That's not to say that there was no prophecy within the Ishmaelites. The reason being is God does not leave a nation by itself. Guidance needs to be there. So here comes the prophet of Islam 
and in a very Abrahamic way our belief would be that we are an Abrahamic tradition and succession runs in the family Abraham had children who took that succession Moses had a brother or cousin afterwards who took that succession Solomon and David it runs in the family so it only makes sense that within Shi'i Islam it's run in the family and there's traditions to talk about 12 Imams it's very Abrahamic however the distinction is this the difference between Shi'ism and other denominations very simply is that Shi'ism believes that the divine guide has to be appointed by God it's not man-made so if Imam Ali was the fourth Caliph even if the people had appointed him the first Caliph for Shias, they wouldn't take that into consideration. The reason being is this, that as much as Imam Ali is believed as an Imam, but if he's not appointed by God, he has no significance. So there has, there has to be a Nasr, has to be appointed by God. If you look at the Quran, Moses hints to God to say, make Aaron my successor. It's only when God stamps it that that happens. Noah is praying for his son, one of his sons, who perishes. But the fact is, God says he's not from you, even though he's a son. It's not from that spiritual line. So in Shia Islam, the concept of the 12 Imams as perfect human beings are appointed by God, firstly. Secondly, they're the protectors of the deen, the religion. And so therefore, they have to be connected with the knowledge of God, as known as the ilm al-dunni. And they're also successors to the prophetic knowledge, so they have to understand different prophets and their methodologies that have come in the past. And that's why you have Imam Ali, the only caliph really who would then say that, look, I'll answer the Jews in Hebrew and I'll look at the Christians from their own books and so forth. It is only in the lives of the Imams within Islamic history. Do you ever read about any supposed Arab person being able to answer different faiths, different religions, and different cultures in their, in their own methodologies? So the Imam has to have this ilm al-dunni, this direct connection with God. That's the second thing. Third thing that the Imam has to have is spiritual perfection. Otherwise, he cannot help other people in terms of their own perfection. So the th fourth point is it has to be infallible. And the Shia understanding of the Imam is infallible. If the Imam is not infallible, I have an argument against God on the Day of Judgment to say, why did you give me a guide who was deficient? Therefore, if you can make a mistake on one thing, surely you can make a mistake on other things as well. It then suspends the entire process of judgment because God hasn't given me a guide. Mm -hmm. So why can you judge me? You haven't, you haven't shown me the way. So within Shia mysticism, the Imam is the Quran. He's the living embodiment of the Qur'an, the practical application, the actualization of the Qur'an. So that to one side. Of course, we have the 12th Imam. And we're particular, so this is now a particular strand of Shia Islam. If you go to other strands, some of them still have a living Imam. Some of them have a system of Da'i. So there may be different methodologies there. But for Shia, for 12ers, we have an Imam who's in occultation. And in, in the time of occultation, of course, again, the Imam hasn't left us completely. 
to our own and you do find individuals who are trained to spiritually guide you, to intellectually guide you and at the same time the benefits of the Imam, the Barakah of the Imam is felt in the same way that the tradition says that it's like when the sun is covered with clouds but the rays still come through, you still see daytime even though you may not be able to see the sun that is the example of the Imam Okay, how then would this conception of Islam interact with a more jurisprudential conception of Islam, one which is more codified and grounded in practice and ritual? Do you think they're incompatible? Do you think they are extensions of one another? How does that interplay engage from your perspective? Just to explain that further, the most complex texts are Shia texts in terms of its jurisprudence. Mm. No other denomination has the complexity of jurisprudence that we have in its principles. If you were to go to Al-Azhar and you were to study a course to become a Mufti, your book of the principles of jurisprudence would be so big, meaning not more than a volume. You go and look at Atlahoy's discussion on jurisprudence, it's about this big. 23 to 24 volumes of the stuff so the vast volume of the principles of jurisprudence I would go as far as to say if you take every single denomination of Islam and bring all of their books on the principles of jurisprudence it wouldn't be enough so we are actually a, a denomination of legal experts and this is sometimes the downfall of the current day Shia Hausa system because an alim, a scholar of the religion, isn't just a scholar of halakhic law. Mm-hmm. And today the same model is looked, if you looked at the Bashiva today, speaking to a senior rabbi recently, he said, we've, you know, we've done the same thing, or we're doing the same thing, or you're copying us, or we're copying you. Everything is legal now. And what that means is that if a true scholar of religion comes forward, they have to have knowledge, diverse knowledge. You are not just a scholar of Arabic grammar and syntax, which basically will help to be able to read a text. But the second stage from that would be actually extracting from the Quran and the tradition law. But more than that, there has to be a spiritual element to it. There has to be multiple other type intellectual elements. So the Akhili and the Nakhili have to go together, the intellectual as well as the codified. So as well as the spiritual, so there has to be an all-encompassing understanding of the religion. And unfortunately today, if, there was, if I was to say that there was a downside to it today, it was the fact that we've stopped innovating in the sense of ijtihad. It's become too kind of taqlidi, as they would say. The idea that you're just following those people who've gone before you, who were great innovators of their time. But also, they were polymaths. They were experts in multidisciplines. And today we don't have that. So let's say, for example, we may be amazing at philosophy, let's say, but sometimes the Qur'an is lacking, or we're experts in the tafsir of the Qur'an, but the Irfan is lacking. So I think that you know, we need to focus more upon what the source was than the asalos always, the multidisciplines that we had. Because otherwise all we're doing at the moment is just rationalizing. And Shias, Shiism, the way it's being taught today, is just rationalizing it. So we're expanding and expanding and expanding principles. It's becoming philosophized more, more and more, which then divorces you from the average public. The average public are not philosophers. They've not read Aristotle. They haven't read all the way from Aristotle to, for example, Mullah Sadra. 
you've got to read 200 philosophers before you can actually understand what they're trying to say. That's not palatable for the average person. What's palatable for the average person is wisdom. And that's what you need. And I think knowledge divorced of wisdom becomes just jargon. And sometimes, you know, you look at what's taken place, at least in the United States, this idea of pragmatism and this idea of semantics have taken over philosophy. It's just jargon. Pure philosophy is no more, I believe. And that jargon needs to be removed and to go back to actually pure philosophy. Thank you, Saad, so much for your insights on Ibn Arabi, on Imam Ali, and indeed in general on Shiite thought and how mysticism has informed Shiite thought and the transitions that have occurred within Shiite thought. So thank you so much for your time and we hope you enjoy his speech.